The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Free Reign on Some Gargoyles edition. It's Wednesday, April 17th, 2019. On today's show, the Notre Dame Cathedral has been substantially destroyed by a fire. We talk about the significance of this awful fact with Lauren Collins, a resident of Paris and, of course, staff writer at the New Yorker magazine. And then, Missing Link is the latest from stop-motion studio Leica. It features Hugh Jackman voicing an English explorer who befriends an endearing Sasquatch-type beast. And finally... The ditty known as Old Town Road, it's a runaway hit, a tangle of related controversies to walk us through the crazy thicket, as always, is the wondrous billboardologist Chris Melanthi of Slate. Joining me today is Dan Coyce, writer and editor at Slate Magazine. Dan, welcome back to the show. Thanks. And of course, Dana Stevens, who is Slate's film critic. Hey, Dana. Bonjour. Sublimity and tranquility are not thought of as natural companions until, that is, you walk into a cathedral. Notre Dame is, in a way, the cathedral of cathedrals. How many millions or hundreds of millions or billions, I don't know, people have had a life-defining moment in or around this structure. Uh, It encompasses eons, all kinds of experiences, diversities of people. Um, for all of those things said to contain multitudes, uh, I think it's it's arguable that this one actually does. To experience Notre Dame is to understand it is greater than any one experience. It's meant to surpass you in scale and time and yet also hand you back to your own peace of mind. Anyhow, I could go on and on, but it is now this morning a semi-ruin. To help talk us through this fact and its attendant grief, we're joined by Lauren Collins, staff writer for The New Yorker magazine. Lauren, thank you for coming on the show. I'm thrilled to be here, although it's kind of a sad occasion, but um, thank you for asking me. You were already the person we would have called to ask to come on the show anyway, but by coincidence, you were reporting a piece on the renovation of Notre Dame, so you were one of the final people to come in and see the work that was being done. Um, Talk a little bit about how that came about. So I have been um, reporting just, I mean, kind of a, you know, not a lark of a piece, but just a light kind of, um, you know, curio of a thing um, for the talk of the town section about the restoration that was going on on the roof. And I actually got really into it and kind of couldn't stop. So I had been up on the roof in the fall and I even, you know, took my parents along, which I I don't do normally. Um, But I had also for the last time been up on March um, 27th and I took a construction elevator up and, you know, put on my hard hat and was able to kind of climb up um, in the scaffolding that was surrounding the roof and the spire, the part that burned. And um, I was there to see the decapitation of the um, 12 statues of the apostles that Villers-le-Duc added to the roof um, sometime around 1850. And anyway, it was just, um, yeah, kind of a crazy thing to all of a sudden realize that um, I had been probably among the last people to stand there. So um, I was, you know, really moved and um, devastated to see what happened and what had felt like a great, you know, just bit of luck being up there in the first place suddenly felt like um, a historical <laughs> bit of luck. I mean, this is a structure that signifies in so many different ways, it's hard to pick one. Begin just by saying what it means to the city and the life of the city as as you live in it. Well, I mean, Notre Dame is, yeah, as you said, it's hard to start. It's so many things for Paris. It's kind of, um, first of all, it's just something that everyone who comes here sees. And so it's meaningful to tourists, but it's meaningful to locals, too, because it's kind of, you know, um, a wayfinding point by which you can orient yourself for a lot of things or just a meeting place and kind of a, you know, friendly and familiar, but um, maybe until yesterday, unappreciated um, companion and sentry just to life in Paris. And it's meant a lot of things over many centuries. Um, One thing I was really interested in was Victor Hugo's concept of, of graft, that this building, you know, in the way that we think of the Constitution, for instance, as a living document, is kind of a living building that um, is constantly, you know, 
dying and growing and changing. And I found that very comforting somehow, this notion that, you know, um, something could kind of break off and wither and um, turn to ash, but then we can splice something right back on. And as far as Victor Hugo was concerned, that was fine. So that's something I'm drawing a little bit of, a little bit of um, literary historical comfort from. And in Hugo's time, the the cathedral was in a, in a similar state of disrepair, not as bad as it is this morning, but you know it was it was falling apart. It was uh, it had not been taken care of for centuries. And can you just tell us a little bit about what it was that this reconstruction was meant to be doing, and why why perhaps the cathedral was underappreciated by the city? Well, so the Hunchback came out in 1831, and as you said, the cathedral was in just abject. Um, state at that point. And so this guy, Eugène Villers-le-Duc, um, was brought on to renovate it. And he just had this mania for, um, you know, all things kind of gothic and ornate. And he, he's the one who, you know, plugged the spire onto there and put the apostles. And apparently one of the apostles is, is said to bear um, an uncanny resemblance, actually, to the face of Villers-le-Duc himself. But I got what was a really, I posted something on Instagram and someone wrote in with the most interesting, I mean, just left a comment that I thought was so fascinating. Um, she was, she's a woman who has just finished or maybe is in the midst of finishing a thesis on Viollet le Duc, who was also a novelist. And um, she's writing about a novel that he wrote that kind of predicted this very thing, or, you know, maybe not predicted it, but um, concerned this very thing, a great cathedral that went up in flames and burned. And anyway, her thesis is that for him, architectural restoration and national renewal are um, inseparable. And so I just thought that was such an interesting point to make now in a moment where France is in this kind of, um, you know, social and political crisis before Notre Dame even went up in flames yesterday. Uh, Macron was, in fact, scheduled to um, address the nation last night at 8 o'clock. And I think it was about 6.30 that everyone started, you know, noticing that Notre Dame was on fire. And so um, he canceled his speech and I guess, you know, we'll do it when things calm down. But um, I think it'll be interesting to see how the notion of rebuilding Notre Dame and France's, you know, patrimony and national pride dovetails um, with the challenge of, you know, fixing um, the social fracture that the Gilets Jaunes and and other things have have brought about in France. It's particularly heartening to see just how quickly it seems France uh, is sort of circling around this cause now at a moment of fracture in its, you know, in its social social and cultural space. You know, for 10 years, they've been trying to get people to contribute to a fund to get to renovate Notre Dame. We're also in the midst of this fervent (laughs) debate and crisis in France. Um, over, you know, extreme wealth and how it should be taxed. I mean, that, that's one of the, that, that's kind of considered Macron's like original sin um, that led to a lot of the things that have happened this year with the Gilets Jaunes and all that. And so it's really interesting because um, Macron got rid of this tax called the ISF, the Impôt uh, Solidaire sur la Fortune, I think it is, but this wealth tax that, you know, really rich people had to pay. And it, it was largely symbolic, but Anyway, he got rid of it, and there's this feeling that super rich people like Pinot and Arnaud aren't, you know, paying as much as they should have to um, in taxes. So now, you know, they're kind of voluntarily um, saying, okay, we'll give all this money that we were supposed to give anyway until our enormous tax got canceled. Um, and so there's a whole, you know, polemic, as they say in France, um, arising around that, too. Right. I mean, that makes me think of the, the American healthcare system, which, you know, nobody wants to contribute to until it's falling apart and everyone's crumbling. Right. I mean, it's right. the emergency that, that draws the attention. And Pinot, the French billionaire you're talking about, I think pledged yesterday to donate $100 million, which, if he really is a billionaire, is only 10% of his income. Right? right. So it's not actually that impressive. But it is. It's kind of the French version of, you know, this four-year-old raised enough money for her mother to continue dialysis and not die or what. I mean, you know, it's kind of, um, it's, it's a sad thing or maybe not a sad one, but at least a fraught one um, that it takes a disaster of this order um, for these people to be, you know, parted with their hundreds of millions, whether, whether voluntarily or involuntarily. 
Lauren, maybe you are more up than we are on exactly what has been destroyed and lost within the the cathedral. It seemed as of last night as, as if it wasn't quite clear how many works of art had been taken out because it's under restoration right now anyway, and whether the stained glass windows will survive and all kinds of other um, particulars that I would love to know about. But as a way of just framing that question, I just wanted to say that I don't know about you or about how people in Paris feel about this, but I feel like I almost started the day with a spring in my step today, knowing that the cathedral had not fallen to the ground and that more had had survived than I would have thought. And it did make me think about, you know, as you were saying, just what a palimpsest of history it already was, that there were all these Viollet-le-Duc editions that were from the 19th century and that, you know, the windows were replaced, some of them in the 1960s with non-religious designs and that after the French Revolution, the, the statues were beheaded, I guess, in an, an earlier decapitation, the religious statues, right, were de- beheaded by revolutionaries. So it already has all of these inscriptions of history on it. And it's not as if it's this pure piece of patrimony that was preserved and then burned. That's what's so crazy. When I went in there and was kind of climbing around in the rafters, and I've had this experience in other French churches and cathedrals too, you think there are these, you know, kind of corporate, really sanitized national monuments. I mean, you think, okay, what is it, 35,000 people a day go to Notre Dame? It must be like really, you know, you're thinking like people who went to business school are running these things. And they're not. I mean, they're these these living monuments. And that was what I was so struck by was, you know, when I was up on the roof and looking at these things. I mean, they're just like weird things lying in corners. There are little parts of statues that have um, fallen off and, you know, somebody just put them somewhere. I mean, it's not like it's all um, so rationalized as one would think. I mean, I remember going up in a part of Saint-Sulpice, for instance, that's not open to the public, but they you know, do a tour every second Sunday or something. And people were living up there in kind of grace and favor apartments until the 1970s, and they would have parties. And, like, there were still kind of posters on the walls and things. I mean, you really do get this, like, you know, hunchback of Notre Dame sense that um, there are just, like, strange, you know, (laughs) beings and remnants and spirits and things crawling around up there. So, I mean... I felt much the same way you did, Dana. As soon as it became clear that the Belfry Towers were going to stand, I felt a giant sense of relief, just kind of knowing that at least, you know, from the front where everybody goes in, Notre Dame as we know it would, would remain. And I assume, I mean, that the entire building has been documented down to the square inch, right? And it can be reproduced. Obviously, it's not going to be the original materials but that, again, is going to be part of a cycle of destruction and renewal that it's been going through for 800 years. Exactly. I mean, there is, you know, some precedent for this. The Cathedral of Reims was um, bombarded by the Germans in 1914. And I think they had a bunch of hay bales inside because they were using it um, as a hospital. Anyway, fire, hay, lead roof, the whole thing, like, caught fire and bubbled and burned and was totally obliterated. Um, and that was rebuilt, I think, with a lot of help from the Rockefellers, actually. Um, but Americans were Americans were into that. And it was known as the Martyr Cathedral in France. But it was it was rebuilt beautifully. And I mean if you go there today and you don't know what happened, you kind of kind of wouldn't. Um, so yeah, it's not it's not the first time this has happened. Um, and the inside of Notre Dame was laser scanned, right? In the last decade, someone I believe they laser scanned it to like the nearest micrometer or whatever. What's interesting to me about that is this idea that in rebuilding, you are – I'm so curious about whether they will replicate it as it was, whether they will attempt to replicate the agedness of it. You know, this, as you say, this sort of accretion of of decades and centuries uh, of of just oddments and, uh, and unlikely bits and bobs here and there are sort of part of what makes it, I think, such a – an emotional place to go into the sense that you can see everywhere, not just the big history, right? The huge stained glass windows uh, or the, or the things that have been there for hundreds or, or a thousand years, but you can also see um, the, the evidence of the accretion of history that it, on every wall and in every corner. And that seems hard to replicate or renew, or maybe the rubble from the fire will just become another set of, accretions and and additions to the structure. I'm all of a sudden like, you know, this, I mean, I, 
went to bed with this sense of just total grief and woke up with this kind of sense of opportunity. I'm like, do something crazy. Come on, you know, you don't have to just like, you know, <laughs> replicate. <laughs> let's have, let's have a Pompey do Notre Dame. Or, I mean, you could, I don't know. I have this like, you know, <laughs> totally. I have to say, I did not see that coming. Lauren Collins. <laughs> I know, I know. But you think, I mean, when you look, the more you read about the history of it, you, you realize that you really could like stick absolutely anything up there and in 200 years have people think that it was immemorial. You know what would be at once historically accurate and also just a completely insane step to take is that the the statues in the front, you know, the the sculptures of of saints and religious figures all across the front were originally painted and gilded. They were bright colored, just like Greek statues that we think of as white statues were. I mean, that would be a way to sort of take it, take it to the studs and let it start aging again. (laughs) I'm all for it. Or replace images of the Madonna with images of Madonna. It's got to be a Pikachu gargoyle up there somewhere. Gargoyles. Do we, we haven't even talked about gargoyles. I mean, you know, gargoyle artists, they just like pick people's faces they know and stick them on there. I mean, think of what you could do with like, you know, free reign on some gargoyles. <laughs> All right. I want to make plain that we are being giddy because of a sense of relief at what was not destroyed, not irreverence for what has been destroyed. Oh, um, yeah. Lauren, I thought I would be crying during this segment, and I'm, I'm really happy I that know. we ended it laughing. I know. Me too. Um, Lauren, you are a resident of Paris, and therefore the building is a part of the semi-conscious furniture of your mind, but there must still be maybe one experience which really stands out as, as significant for you with, with Notre Dame. My really significant experience was a repertorial one. It was going up there and holding the head of St. Andrew, you know, in my arms like it was a puppet show. Um, I had my, you know, fist kind of stuck up in his neck. That that was what I was up there doing um, that day in March. They were dismounting the statues of the apostles and taking them. They were going to take them to a workshop somewhere outside of Paris to be restored. And that was just like one of the most incredible things. I've ever done somehow. I mean, I just, I didn't want to go down. Um, this is reflected in the beautiful kicker of your piece, um, which I'd love to read. The saints' bodies were joined with their heads last week at the artisans' workshop. Workshop in, uh, pronounce it for me, Perigueux. Perigueux. Yeah, that's perfect. They are the city centuries, its wayposts, the bombers of a billion photos, the inhabitants of an arrondissement in the sky. They at least are safe. Lauren, you are a new friend of the program, NFOP. It is great to finally have you on the show. Um, I'm sorry for the occasion, um, but lovely, lovely finally to speak with you. Thanks for coming. Well, hopefully it'll be a happier one next time. Thanks so much for having me. All right, before we uh, go any further, Dana, we have business, no doubt, to talk about. What do you What do you have? First of all, there is a fun new feature on the site of Slate.com. Over the years on this show and other Slate podcasts, we have recommended countless articles, books, films, TV shows, podcasts, products, etc. All of our endorsements and those on other Slate podcasts through the years have now been collected and put in a searchable database, the Slate podcast Endorsomatic. You can find everything we've ever chattered about, recommended, or endorsed in one handy place, and that place is slate.com slash endorsements. I'm going to use that myself, actually. I often come out of this show thinking, what was that poem Steve was reading or whatever? And if there's an easy place to go and find all that stuff for us and other podcasts, I, for one, will use it. Also, a reminder about Slate Day. On Saturday, June 8th, Slate will be in the Chelsea Market Passage on the High Line and in the SVA Theater in Chelsea with a day of live podcasts, energetic conversations, and fun experiences. Dan, I think you know more about what's going to happen on Slate Day than me. Can you give one little one-sentence plug about why New Yorkers who like our magazine should come to Slate Day? Yeah, there's just uh, a a panoply of amazing events. Um, In addition to a live Culture Gab Fest, we have a mom and dad are fighting play date uh, with Carvel Wallace in from San Francisco for an event to which you can bring your kids. And we will have activities uh, and fun things for kids to do, as well as somehow, I don't know how, we'll be recording a podcast. Uh, plus, we're doing uh, Trivia Night, Slate Pop Culture Trivia, that I'm hosting along with Slate's Shasha Leonard. Uh, and uh, Dana, I believe that you will be at a table there. So details of how to join Slate Day, either with an all-access pass for all of those activities Dan just mentioned, or just tickets for the part you want to go to, can be found at slate.com. Com slash live. 
And finally, in Slate Plus today, we are going to be talking about Notre Dame. We had a great conversation with Lauren Collins of The New Yorker about what it's like to be in Paris at this moment in history that a a monument has burned, thankfully not to the ground, but been substantially destroyed. Um, But we didn't get a chance to talk about our own history and experiences with the building. And I think I would imagine that almost everyone, whether you've ever been to Paris or not, has some kind of experience with that historic building. And so we're going to talk about ours. If you want to hear segments like that and get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program, for just $35 for your first year. And in return, you will get extended ad-free versions of this show with all kinds of wonderful surplus content. So if you want to support the Slate Culture Gab Fest and our other podcasts, please go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus. All right, Steve, back to the show. Leica is a stop-motion animation studio. Its latest movie is called Missing Link. It features Hugh Jackman voicing the part of Lionel Frost, an adventurer naturalist in the Victorian mold who wants to prove himself to an establishment that regards him as little more than an upstart and a crank. I know the feeling. His big problem is he has a commanding preoccupation with mythical beasts. If he can return with a Sasquatch or a Yeti or a what have you, it's a triumph, a double triumph, really. When he finally encounters such a beast, however, it turns out to be a gentle, insecure, and finally quite pitiably lonely thing. And so he decides to help reunite this beast with uh, more of his kind. Uh, The beast, I should say, is voiced by Zach Galifianakis. Why don't we uh, listen to a clip? You can speak! Yes, and um, I write as well. My penmanship isn't great, but, uh, you know, opposable thumbs and Fat fingers, you know. How can you speak? Good question. How can I speak? Well, I watched it first. I listened. I paid attention to a lot of things. I, I learned. I stole books, newspapers here and there. And um, An old shaman in the valley helped me a little. Not only that, he taught me how to play chess. Smart shaman. Not really. I mean, I beat him every time. He's a lousy player. And he cheats. He's a cheater. <laughs> You're exactly as I imagined. Eight feet tall. Chest circumference 70 inches, total weight around 650 pounds. Well, I would say it's more like, uh, you know, 630 pounds. You know, it's it's the hair that makes me look heavier, I think. It's it's a, it's a little deceptive. It can be frustrating. But... Oh, and look at the size of those metatarsals. Whoa, sir! Wow, your hands! Do you mind if I smell you? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, I bathed recently, you know, like two weeks ago in a creek. Uh, so sure, you didn't drink from the creek, did you? <laughs> Remarkable. Uh, Dana, as always, let's uh, start with you. And it's a movie. What uh, would you make of this one? You know, I was excited to do this because Like a Studio is such an, an interesting force in animation. And along with, I mean, essentially along with Ardman Studios, the the one associated with Wallace and Gromit and the Shaun the Sheep, you know, the, the Nick Park studio in England is the only place doing stop motion at this scale. And so I always like to, to see what they're up to. But I don't think that Leica has ever equaled their very first film, Coraline, their debut movie, which I believe we talked about on the show. If not, we should we should go back and revisit it sometime because I feel like Coraline was really one of the the great animated films of the past few years. Um, but this one sort of disappointed me. It looks really beautiful. Their their technique gets more and more sophisticated. They're now using 3D printers and all kinds of they're sort of mingling, you know, old school claymation style technology with newer digital and 3D printing technology. It's so sophisticated, but the storytelling has just not kept pace with the animation. And I found this only 90 minute long movie painfully slow, uh, unsure of what its themes were in a strange way. And we can get into that. I think it's trying to be a commentary on British imperialism and the notion that taking a creature out of its natural habitat is this violent thing. And there's some stuff about sexism in there, but none of it really comes together at the end to make that much story sense to me. And uh, the voice characterizations, as you could hear in that clip, are very charming, too. But I was in a theater not that full with just a few families in it, but I didn't feel like the kids were that into it. Of course, you can't judge on the small sample size of one theater full of kids, but the one little kid was crying and wanting to leave, which can happen in any movie for any reason, of course. (laughs) There weren't a lot of laughs. A lot of the jokes seemed to be going over the kids' heads. I just didn't feel that this movie was connecting with its audience. And that made me sad because so much care has been put into creating these creatures. Actually, my favorite part of the movie, as has been the case with a lot of the Leica movies, not including Coraline, is the credit sequence or right before it when they show some of the making in progress. And you get to see what it actually looks like behind the scenes on the set of a Leica movie where, you know, essentially people are moving little puppets around um, created landscapes. And uh, and the, the work that went into it is one of the most exciting things about it. 
Dan, if I'm not mistaken, I think you went with your kids. What did you all make of the movie? Um, I like Dana. I'm also a Leica fan. Um, I I love what they do. I love that they are keeping stop motion animation alive. Unlike Dana, I actually think I love Coraline, but I actually think some of their movies since then have been even better. Um, Kubo and the Two Strings, which came out a couple of years ago and was the first animated movie ever to be nominated for a visual effects Oscar for its like incredibly groundbreaking work in um, in using 3D printing to create a kind of combination CG stop motion magic on screen that, that no one else has been able to do. It's like pretty I think it's a really great movie that looks incredible. Uh, this movie is like a total piece of shit. Um, and I cannot believe like how disappointed I was coming out of it as like a Leica stand, someone who, you know, until recently was like hassling Leica, trying to get them to let me come behind the scenes to like tell how they make their magic. Uh, you know, I stand for them close to the way I stand for Pixar. And so like to see a movie like this, which is like so dead and so unfunny and, and, you know, left basically every kid in our auditorium completely cold. And I will say there were a total of five kids in our auditorium and seven people total at the screening. Um, It was just a huge bummer. Like almost everything goes wrong with this movie, in my opinion. And so I'm sort of, I'm less interested, I think, in talking about the themes of this movie, which of which who cares and more interested in talking about like, how does a movie go this wrong especially from a studio that up till now has been like very ambitious and very careful about what they release that's in the end what i think is interesting to me about this cautionary tale but maybe steve you will turn the tables by telling us how great this movie actually is i'm sorry to disappoint you but um i have the exactly the same set of feelings and furthermore went with my now 13 year probably 13 year old uh, daughter who was um, left completely cold by the movie. I mean, she knows enough to know that it was just a, a very poorly constructed, poorly conceived, poorly constructed, poorly executed script. Uh, you don't, none of your, your it, it is trying to stir your feelings in a John Lasseter slash Pixar way for this beast. The beast is never a plausible character in and of himself, uh, as much as Zach Galifianakis uh, tries to make the material human. Um, the struggle, the struggle of the explorer to join this club, which is intrinsically hateful, and it's both immediately set up as the villain of the whole movie. This this social club, which explorers club that won't have him as a member. But he's banging his head against the wall to get into it, which just makes no sense. It plays both ways and, and, and is, is nonsensical. Another thing she picked up on that I picked up on, too, completely independently of one another, is the violence. The amount of violence in the in the movie is preposterous. It does something that I think of as a relic of movies of the 80s and 90s, which is um, it sets up the villains in such a way as to excuse a highly sadistic ending in which they get theirs violently, like one would even say ultra-violently. I felt like I was watching a Don Simpson movie from 1990 more than I was watching a post-Pixar you know, animated film, in this instance, a stop-action film. It's, it's, it's a very misbegotten uh, venture. It's, it's, uh, it's boring. It's it's boring, uninteresting, unengaging material, um, and the cleverness of the ingenuity of the animation doesn't doesn't make up for it. Not not even close. It's true that you don't see villains tumble into chasms so much anymore. That was a real throwback. Well, impaling and I mean, so I, this movie I, has completely flopped. Um, you know, it's a it's a it is a huge box office disaster. Uh, it made five point eight million dollars in its opening weekend. That is the lowest box office ever for a movie releasing on as many screens as this movie released on. Um, and Leica, as a studio, has seen each one of its movies do a little bit worse than the previous one at the box office. Even as, at least in my opinion, they have gotten better and better. Um, starting with a great peak of Coraline, but then getting even better through Box Trolls and Kubo and the Two Strings, which are both movies I love a lot. Um, but so I'm so curious. You know, it's often movies that I find quite terrible do great. Often movies 
that get good reviews, which oddly this kind of did. Like the critical reviews of this movie have been kind, if not exuberant, um, don't do as well as I want them to. And yet here we have a movie that is clearly identifiable as a stinker um, and and was justifiably ignored by by its chosen audience who clearly never knew what to do with it. Um, and I guess I should view that as a kind of like triumph of the marketplace. But instead, it just makes me sad that this company that once seemed so devoted to making things that both looked great and played well and told great stories, like just boofed it so bad. Dana, it's a bummer to have to talk about a movie that we unanimously disdain, but maybe I can flip it around a little bit and say, um, you know, uh, John Lasseter, I'm sure deserves to to be in whatever Me Too purgatory he's in. uh, And uh, in no way am I just trying to mitigate his fate in that, but it does it does return to consciousness the extent to which he is able to take this kind of material and in the first five minutes stab you, you know, unerring with a kind of unerring poignancy to just stab you with the poignancy of the of the human aspect of the story um, in ways that involve loss and failure and grief um, so that you then are along for the entire ride. And, and um, we live in a world where the standard for movies like this has been set by by Pixar, uh, a target that they hit over and over and over and over again. And I'm, I mean, maybe one way of just making the conversation more positive is to say when those things are, are absent, there's just almost nothing you can do with the ingredients. Yeah, it surprises me the, the degree to which that kind of quality control, I mean, whatever John Lasseter's problems, you cannot say that he did not run a tight ship at the Pixar studio, right, in terms of the quality control of scripts as well as animation. And it just doesn't seem like the script end at, at Leica is, is, is holding up. I don't don't know quite how this story got past whoever had to okay it to the point where all of this money was sunk into the way it looked. It really seemed as if there was some sort of blind spot about the fact that the story doesn't really make sense. And I mean, to get a little bit into why, we don't have to get heavily into the themes, but to get a little bit into why, the character himself, as you said, of the the missing link guy, the the Yeti Sasquatch creature voiced by Zach Galifianakis, just doesn't make sense sort of socially in the world that he's placed in. The whole premise is that he needs to find his kin, right? He needs to get to the Himalayas and, and meet the other Yeti in the world because he's the only one left in the new world. And every every human runs away screaming when they see him. But throughout the movie, he travels across the world with the Hugh Jackman character on adventures and nobody runs away when they see him. All he has to do is put on a hat and no one seems to notice that he's an eight foot tall Sasquatch. So, you know, there are things like that that just kind of keep the whole thing from ever feeling like a coherent universe that you could believe in. And there's the the rhythm of the movie is so like babyish, you know, there's like the, there's there's the Sasquatch's one joke, which is his like he's basically Amelia Bedelia. Right. right. He takes he's a literalist. Really literally. Yeah. Right. And like that joke plays probably 15 times in this movie and it is unfunny every single time. <laughs> and then the, every action scene has this very repetitive feel like they are in a location and then the bad guy is hiding somewhere and then he shows up with a gun and then there's a fight with a bunch of punching and then they escape. And that probably happens four or five times. And I mean, you know, the even like the 11 year olds I was with at this movie were like, wow, that that was really repetitive. All those scenes seem the same. And I feel like if your if your narrative sophistication cannot impress even an 11 year old, you are not at this point in history, as you say, Steve, you are not doing children's movies right. And by the way, my daughter totally explicitly said, like, man, you do not see animated movies that feature firearms all that often. I mean, she was really... Yeah. I, I only report what she's telling me. I mean, she was surprised at the prominence given to a handgun in this in this picture. So uh, just for the record, I mean, I think, you know, one of the great pleasures of doing this show over the last 10 or 12 years has been in that period, it has been easy on a week-to-week basis to talk about things that we strongly suspect we're going to admire. And we we really, really evolved beyond the kind of three carping eggheads talking about a superhero movie that none of us, you know, respond to. And we just kind of 
backed into Missing Link, and it's it's just a shame. And I hope that this segment is offered in the spirit of sort of constructive criticism. I really mean that sincerely. Uh, we didn't want to uh, we didn't want to go see a movie that we then subsequently shat upon, but there is something misbegotten here, uh, regardless of the um, you know kind of remarkable talents that were assembled to make it. So the movie's Missing Link. Some of you are going to disagree. Please uh, find us on social media and tell us why. All right, moving on. Old Town Road is a uh, a rap song um, by Little Nas X. There's now also, of course, a remix featuring Billy Ray Cyrus. There are so many layers to the story layered upon such a tiny little song. I mean, the song is, is by some estimations, one of the shortest songs ever to hit number one on the Billboard charts. And then there are additional extrinsic layers. It was simultaneously charting on the Hot 100, Hot Country songs, Hot R&B, Hip Hop songs uh, as recently as March. But then Billboard removed the song from its Hot Country chart for reasons that we'll get into. All of this adds up to only one thing, which is we need Chris Melanthi to walk us through it. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Steve. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. It's great to have you back. Tell us which version of the song we should listen to first. Why don't we listen to the original? Because... You know, this original version, believe it or not, as you pointed out in your intro, did appear on the Hot Country Songs chart in mid-March for all of one week. And it was tagged by its creator, Lil Nas X, as a country song. Hence, Billboard allowed it to chart country. Uh, And I'd like everybody to come to their own conclusions about the country quality of this record. I got the horses in the back, horse stock is attached, head is mad at black, got the boosters black to match, riding on a horse, ha, you can whip your horse, I've been in the valley, you ain't been up off that porch, now nah, can't nobody feel me. Where do you begin with the level of pastiche in that record? Um, If you're wondering what that twangy thing playing underneath it is, it's a sample of, wait for it, Nine Inch Nails. That is an instrumental track from an already oddball album by Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails that came out in the late 2000s. I believe um, none of the tracks on the album had actual titles, so I believe the official name of it is 34 Ghosts. IV as in Roman numeral four, because he didn't give any of the songs titles. So it's this Nine Inch Nails instrumental that was already making the rounds in rap beat circles. And Lil Nas X acquired that beat sort of secondhand. It had already been somewhat manipulated, although not much. It's pretty close to what, you know, Reznor had in his original version. Um, So you've got this sort of oddly twangy uh, nine inch nails, you know, guitar hook, twang hook, let's call it. Um, you've got lyrics like Can't Nobody Tell Me Nothing, which is pretty much a direct reference to a song called Can't Tell Me Nothing by Kanye West, which came out on his graduation album in, I believe, 2007. So it's calling back to, you know, some now classic hip hop. Um, it's got, you know, alternative rock baked into it. And, you know, we called it a rap song at the beginning of this um, segment, but Really, Lil Nas X sings his way through most of it. There's not a whole lot of dropping bars on this thing. Um, and and then the vocal is this. It should be stated for the record that Lil Nas X is from Atlanta, Georgia. So he is a Southern person himself. It's not as if this isn't his cultural heritage to some extent, but he's pretty clearly overemphasizing the twang. Um, in my article, I said it would be like if you assigned a student a cultural studies assignment to, you know, make his own country record. And he just, you know, well, got to check some boxes, got to have a heavy twang in my voice, got to have a lyric about a cowboy hat, got to have a lyric about boots, got to mention horses, you know. And so it's it's both a pastiche and some in the country community would argue a novelty. And that gets at the crux of why it is so controversial that this record is or is not a country record uh, and why many in the 
let's call it Nashville Industrial Complex, are balking at the idea that this should be included on Billboard's Hot Country Chart. And if you want, I can go down the rabbit hole of the methodology by which Billboard builds its Hot Country Chart that explains why we have gotten ourselves into this pickle and why Billboard is basically the subject of some angry headlines over the last two to three weeks over whether or not this song should be on the Hot Country Songs chart. Rather than make you go down that rabbit hole, which is a very interesting one, and I commend people to go to your to your piece and read about it. Sure. But can you talk about the other? What is the defensibility of this kind of gatekeeping that um, that Billboard does at, at, with with various charts? Whether it consists of you know throwing Lil Nas off the country chart because he's not country enough, or deciding right? I mean, there's that happens in other genres as well. You decide that um, Uptown Funk is not an R&B song when right. it transparently seems to be quoting all kinds of R&B tropes, but it was also gatekept off a certain chart. Can you talk about uh, what's defensible about that kind of gatekeeping? Uh, why isn't it just a pure, I mean, as it has been deplored online, why isn't it just sort of a racist, classist way of fixing genres in place and keeping out the people that have not traditionally belonged to them? I mean, I have to play a certain amount of devil's advocate here, and I don't entirely disagree with this point. I think there is an argument to be made, and I'm being somewhat generous here, that Old Town Road is not a core country song the way country has been defined. That is not necessarily racist, but it's not a good look, right? And here's here's the core argument in my article. The... Audience for a genre, whether it's R&B, Latin, country, has long policed its borders. And I am not opposed to an audience, the audience for a genre. Picture R&B, for example. Picture hip-hop. Picture, you know, what should qualify as a rap song. Genre policing happens all the time. But you want to create a situation where there is not a top-down policing of the borders of genre. It should be kind of bottom-up. And what has made that difficult to kind of summarize the point I'm making in my article is that in the digital era, it has become surprisingly hard to narrow down the boundaries of an audience such that you are only measuring that audience. This has particularly bedeviled the R&B chart. And the analogy I make, which you alluded to in your question, was when Billboard decided in late 2014 that Uptown Funk by Mark Ronson and Bruno Mars was not going to be tagged as an R&B song, which is kind of crazy because Uptown Funk is an homage to early 80s R&B. It sounds like a mashup of Rick James, The Gap Band, and Zap. And yet they decided this is a pop record. And the reason why that was important was if they had allowed it on the R&B songs chart, because of the screwy way Billboard has formulated its genre charts this decade in the digital era, it basically would have dominated that chart for the better part of four or five months. Um, And I think they feared that this record would have come in and obliterated everything. So then Billboard finds itself in the uncomfortable position of making these top-down judgment calls about what does or doesn't qualify. And when you have a situation where everybody aggregates into the same few digital services, right? Everybody goes to Spotify or Apple Music, you know, and a small handful of others. Everybody goes to iTunes to buy things. Um, There's no longer in the case of... um, in the case of the R&B audience, there's no longer such a thing as the black-owned record store or the record store that caters to a primarily African-American clientele. So you can no longer narrow uh, the data that goes into a genre chart down to the audience for that chart. And one example I bring up, sorry to keep talking about R&B, but I do feel it helps with um, you know, the analogy to country. One example I bring up is in 1982, the Hall & Oates song, I Can't Go For That, went to number one on the R&B chart. And nobody blinked an eye at that these blue-eyed soul white boys were topping the chart because back then the chart was composed of sales at R&B, basically black-owned or R&B catering record stores, and the airplay component was limited to black radio. And if black radio was playing that one particular Hall & Oates song, it wasn't everything. It wasn't like Rich Girl topped the chart. It wasn't like Maneater topped the chart. This one record was deemed by the black audience, this is a core R&B record. And it topped the chart and everybody thought this is great. This is crossover. This is how crossover is supposed to work. The same analogy holds for country. And because of the racial component, I think it's an, it's a bad look for country to look like it's gatekeeping. But the country audience, as long as there has been country music, 
dating all the way back to the 50s and 60s, people debated, you know, the, the countrypolitan sound of, you know, was, was Patsy Cline going too countrypolitan with her sophisticated arrangements? Was Dolly Parton crossing over too much to the pop audience? Policing the boundaries of country has been around as long as country radio has existed. Um, and I don't really have a problem with that. This is, this is the side of, you know, my, my small C conservative side coming out that I don't have a problem with folks saying this belongs to this genre, this, this does not. Where I come down, though, is that it should not be a top-down gatekeeper like Billboard, love them though I do, or, you know, the Nashville Industrial Complex saying, throw that off the chart, it doesn't belong there. That was, that was what caused the furor. And people are rightfully questioning the racial component because, let's face it, country music in particular has a pretty bad record in this. You know, in the early 60s, Ray Charles recorded an album called Modern Sounds in Country and Western Music that topped the pop charts and never appeared on the country charts. And that was mostly because, you know, the Nashville industry, if you will, kind of turned its back on Ray Charles. For the record, by the way, in the 80s, Ray Charles did a duet with, I believe it was Willie Nelson, and that topped the country chart. So not a good look, but, you know, Ray Charles was capable of recording something that qualified for country radio. It's just he needed a a white participant to do it. Um, You know, that brings us to Billy Ray, which brings us to Billy Ray. Right. And so now might be the time to play some of the Billy Ray Cyrus remix of Old Town Road. Down cross town, living like a rock star. Spend a lot of money on my brand new guitar. Baby's got a habit, diamond rings and Fendi sports bras. Riding down Rodeo in my Maserati sports car. Got no stress, I've been through all that. I'm like a Marlboro man, so I keep going back. Wish I could roll on back to that old town road. I wanna ride till I can't go. So as you can hopefully hear in that segment, Billy Ray has not changed the bones of the song all that much. And I got to hand it to him. I mean, he's he's creating a perfect control group here and kind of daring the music industry, Billboard, you know, again, the country industrial complex. Tell me this isn't country when I put my high lonesome vocal on it that you don't hear this as a country song. And then, of course, one thing we haven't talked about is the cross pollination of country music with hip-hop production with certain hip-hop tropes has been going on for about two decades now you know and so for example if you have a record like jason aldean's dirt road anthem which was an enormous hit about eight years ago he actually raps on dirt road anthem and you know there have been other records uh, from artists like bubba sparks and cowboy troy um that have you know walked the line between hip-hop and country. Um, Never mind the fact that there is a long heritage of, you know, the black cowboy, which, you know, is, has been overlooked in the history of country music, but, you know, is, is part of American history. Um, So the Billy Ray remix really does kind of force you into a dare to say, okay, is this a novelty record or is this now just becoming a straight up country record? Maybe it was a country record to begin with. And I must say, as a as an urban boy, you know, a guy who's who grew up in New York City, a city that didn't even have a country radio station for a period of a couple of decades, and most of what I know about country music, I've sort of picked up secondhand or by reading Billboard. I don't feel fully equipped to police the boundaries of country or point my finger or wag my finger, in fact, at the country audience and say, "How dare you? This record is clearly country." But I do feel that. The country audience should be allowed to organically decide, we like this record, we, we want to hear this record on our country radio station back to back with, you know, Luke Bryan. And um, Luke Bryan, another guy who, by the way, has played with mild hip hop tropes in his music. Um, they should be allowed to do that. And, and then it would chart country and it would feel organic. Do you know what I mean? Um, but the current digital driven genre chart system um, makes that very difficult. Chris, you talk about this remix as a kind of a dare. Do you think that was always the intention of this song? Was that always Lil Nas X's intention? Or did it become his intention when Billboard provoked him in a way by removing the original song off the country charts? I guess what I mean to ask is, do you read this song can this song be read as an affectionate nod to country, a parody of country, a troll 
of country? Is it stupid to like even ask these questions? Is it unreadable? Is it meant to be unreadable? Those questions are not stupid at all. And unfortunately, I think the answer to all your questions is yes, because it could be all of these things, right? The the very affected vocal by Lil Nas X is so put upon. It, it could be homage. It could be parody. It's affectionate parody if it's parody. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't think anybody can regard it as hostile. The... The Billy Ray version was very intentionally designed. He, he says it openly in interviews. He was very intentionally trying to prove a point. Whereas, to your original question, Dan, I'm not sure Lil Nas X was trying to prove a point. I think Lil Nas X was enjoying a beat that he found, this Nine Inch Nails beat that doesn't really sound like alternative rock. It sort of sounds twangy. And he thought, well, I know what I could do with this. And, you know, he did what he did with it. And the record's really catchy. I mean, I'm not sure I'm going to put it in my top 10 for the year, but I, I kind of love it. I think it's I think it's a lot of fun. And the sort of punchline to all this is that is that the song is now appearing on country radio. It is with a caveat. Um, we're recording this on Tuesday morning and the new wave of chart data just came out yesterday. Um, first of all. Old Town Road is an even more dominant Hot 100 number one uh, than it was in its first week. It's now in its second week at number one, and it just set a record, a streaming record um, for most streams for any song in the history of streaming. Frankly, we keep resetting the record for streaming because streaming just keeps growing. But like, there's like a top ten list of you know most streamed records in a single week. Frankly, most of which are Drake songs, and then there's like you know a couple of others. Uh, and this thing just obliterated the record. Um, however. Billboard makes a note when it announced the new Hot 100 yesterday that that country airplay that you referenced, Dan, was a bit of a mirage, a bit of a chimera, because it was on the Hot Country Airplay chart, which isolates just airplay at country radio stations for one week. And that's legit, by the way. There's nothing fishy about that. They basically just measure how much songs get played on country radio, country formatted radio stations, and then, you know, multiply it by the audience. And then it's like, there you go. There's your country airplay chart. And it did appear for one week and everybody went, aha, there you go. It's a country record. Billboard and you can tell the billboard have their backs up about this. They basically revealed that that was mostly morning show and curiosity plays like basically some Nashville stations debating the record played it in their, you know, their morning drive time show. And that aggregated enough plays that it appeared for one week on the country airplay chart at number 53. It has now fallen off the country airplay chart. So that is not helping us here in making this determination. Is this a country record? Is the audience organically deciding this is a country record? If you see it come back to the country, or it is helping chart, us because the audience is not organically decided. Maybe right? they have decided it is organically not a country record. Maybe. I mean, you know, and then of course there's the, 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 the fishy science of how songs get on country radio in the first place. We we don't want to go down the rabbit hole of the so-called tomato gate controversy over the fact that country radio no longer plays women. Um, is that organic or is that, you know, a, a top down call by the country industrial complex? But yeah, no, you have a point. It, it's possible that the audience is just not requesting the song. They're smirking at it. But they're, you know, if you're a regular country radio listener, maybe you're like, well, that's charming and all. But I don't need to hear that, you know, back to back with Luke Bryan. We're getting a wrap-up signal from the producer, but I have to just end with the meta observation that Lil Nas has proved one thing, which is something he points out about himself in interviews, and it's true, is that he gets the internet. You know, I mean, whatever he's done with this song, he's managed to make it, you know, a, a memeable thing that that teenagers are streaming on on TikTok and acting out little cowboy dances to. He's making us all talk about what kind of song it is and hop from chart to chart. He seems to be almost outside of this controversy we're talking about, just riding the wave of the internet to to stardom. Exactly, and the the internet, as I said near the top of this segment, kind of foils genre divisions to begin with. It's made it harder for Billboard. And even as I critiqued Billboard in this article, I admitted, you know, I have sympathy for them. This is not an easy thing to fix. And it, it, an artist like Lil Nas X who knows how to sort of ride an internet meme and, you know, put something out in the world that is hard to categorize you know, it kind of blows up the whole methodology behind genre. I am a firm believer that genre needs to con continue to exist. I would not want to exist in a world where you could no longer track what the R&B audience is continuing to listen to because I feel crossover is still valid and I, th I think we're a big enough country that you want to see how records cross from one genre to another. But yeah, Lil Nas X has really kind of, you know, thrown a bug in the system. Um, and uh, that may be the most admirable thing about the record. Well, Chris, there's nobody better at coming in and like playing pickup sticks and just separating all the little pieces gingerly so that uh, 
something that made no sense to me now makes sense to me and is a totally compelling chris malampi of slate.com thanks for coming on the show it was my pleasure, Steve. Thank you. Before you go, Chris, I just I wanted to send people if they want to get further into the interesting wrinkles of Chris Malanfi's brain on Billboard Hot 100 and how its its methodology has changed in the past few years because of streaming. They should go to your latest Why Is This Song number one column on Slate, which is called The Controversy Over Old Town Road Reveals Problems Beyond Just Race. It's, it's a great article. Thank you so much, Dana. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Oh, I have so much. I was up really late last night reading and thinking about Notre Dame. And uh, as we as we said in our segment on Notre Dame, we didn't know yesterday as much as we know now about how much of the cathedral had survived. So I think I, I went to sleep last night in a much more reflective mood about, you know, Ozymandias and, and the ephemerality of all things. And luckily, we are not in quite as bleak a place about the future of that building as we thought we might be yesterday when it was aflame in real time before our eyes. But I found so many wonderful pieces of culture related to Notre Dame. I mean, there's not a a poet who hasn't written a poem on it, it seems. There's not a composer who hasn't written some music about it. But I studied in Paris for a year in college, and the thing that I was studying then, this was my my major as an undergraduate, was medieval and Renaissance studies. And one of the great things to do in Paris in the, in the many, many churches throughout the city is listen to music, because they're always having concerts that echo incredibly within the vaulted ceilings of, of cathedrals. I remember in particular going to Midnight Mass at Notre Dame, the, the Christmas that I was there, and, uh, and hearing singing that just sounded so, so incredible in the cathedral. And one of the things that originated there is this school of classical music that was called the the School of Notre Dame um, and that was that came from the cathedral composers there. And I'm not going to have the musical vocabulary to talk about what the School of Notre Dame was. Maybe one of our more musical listeners can help to define it. But it was one of the first European polyphonic musics, right? It was the first kind of music that had interlocking vocals rather than just a single vocal line sung in unison. And uh, And so as I was reading all of this stuff and coming upon poems and passages about Notre Dame. I was listening to some music from the Notre Dame school that is just still so gorgeous and you wish you could be hearing it inside a vaulted cathedral. And so I wanted to endorse one of the things that I came across, which is the Hilliard Ensemble, a medieval vocal ensemble that's been around for a long time. I think I saw them 20 years ago or something. It's probably one of those ensembles that replaces its members but continues to perform under that name. It's the Hilliard Ensemble singing Perrotin, who was one of the few composers of the Notre Dame School who who is actually remembered by name and not anonymously. There's just a couple of them whose, whose names were recorded and almost nothing is known about them because it was such a long time ago. But Perrotin's music has survived. It's, it's been notated, and uh, the Hilliard Ensemble singing it is just a, a gorgeous and soaring thing. Dana's optimism when waking up this morning notwithstanding, the Culture Gap Fest would like to stress that all things are ephemeral, and we all shall indeed return to this. <laughs> Book of Ecclesiastes, uh, Today I would like to endorse um, uh, a couple of cartoons, a couple of comics. Um, so today, Tuesday, as we record, uh, we announce the winners of the Cartoonist Studio Prize, which is Slate's annual comics prize, which we award in conjunction with the Center for Cartoon Studies in Vermont. Um, each year we give a prize uh, of $1,000 and eternal glory to the best print comic and the best web comic of the previous year. Um, and both our winners this year are really, really great, and I want to endorse them for our listeners. They both, as it happens, are autobiographical comics that explore the tension between motherhood and art. Um, the best print comic prize went to Kyla Roberts for her book, Chlorine Gardens, a very small press book um, from a press called Kayama Press, uh, which depicts money troubles, annoying kids, and the diagnosis of a chronic illness with a sideways deadpan sense of humor that I found just completely inexplicable uh, and fascinating. I really love this book. 
It's called Chlorine Gardens by Kyla Roberts. Uh, and then Lauren Weinstein won our webcomic prize for her piece, Being an Artist and a Mother, which ran on the New Yorker's website and which explores Weinstein's struggles to make art through the lens of a early 20th century painter named Paula Moderson Becker. They're both really great. We'll have links up on the show page. Um, once again, Chlorine Gardens by Kyla Roberts and Being an Artist and a Mother by Lauren Weinstein. Um, excellent. All right. Well, I, of all the writers whose consciousness I'm most thrilled to being inside of, I mean, I think Orwell, the nonfiction Orwell is up there, Janet Malcolm, um, moments of Joan Didion, but but right up there with them and maybe even all alone at the top is, is James Baldwin. And it's just, it's just shameful how little I've attended to that, you know, kind of awe um, in a way. And it's amazing to read even some of his incidental prose, because he's just, I mean, you know, obviously he's agonizing over what it is to be a black American and to what extent that's, you know, a, a grinding, you know, oxymoron um, and to what extent it's, it's you know, just a, a completely unique position to be in identity-wise in the world. Um, but he's also agonizing over what it is simply to be an American, to be in an, what he calls sort of an unfixed society trying to give yourself a sense of fixity, but also without com- completely being at odds with the dominant um, flow of your own uh, culture. And I happen upon a book that I know nothing about, um, uh, probably shame on me, but Nobody Knows My Name is a collection of things that he wrote uh, in the 50s. Um, and there's a piece, the second piece, and it is called Princes and Powers. And it's about the conference. He attends a conference uh, and it was called the Con- Conference of Negro African Writers and Artists in Paris in the 1950s. And, you know, people who know that era know that it was the great era of soul-searching conferences about what the post-war world ought to look like. Uh, Americans played a huge role in these conferences, often covertly backed by the CIA. Uh, they were always the Cold War was the context within which they were happening. What is a free society? What is a free society owed to the historically disesteemed populations within them? What's the nature of colonialism in a decolonizing world? Um, on and on and on. And this is one one such conference that was um, given over exclusively to um, sort of pan-African um, intellectuals. Baldwin was uh, there as an observer, not as a participant. Uh, Richard Wright was act, did actually give a presentation. And so a, a, a number of things very quickly about it is that Baldwin's uh, skills as a, as a journalist, I mean, I think he was there as a journalist, his ability to describe each speaker, um, you know, is just in excess of what any profile journal, I mean, he's just, he just is a man of remarkable literary talents, but journalistically, he just makes these people one by one so vivid and the relationship between the, the, the place that they're coming from, whether it be Martinique or, uh, or Nigeria or on and on and on, like what their social cultural situation is, relative to their own personality, their own force of personality and how it plays in the hall. These are described with such vivid beauty. But vis-a-vis Notre Dame and the burning of Notre Dame, which some people on Twitter chose to take as an occasion to vent their, no doubt in some respects, very well-earned frustration with France, with white people and with empire. I thought there was a passage that in Baldwin that I thought was interesting because a very Christian, uh, uh, a representative Christian Africa gives a speech. Um, and I wanted to read what Baldwin says about that. Dr. James did not seem to be distressed and went on to discuss the relationship between Christianity and democracy. In Africa, he said, there was none whatsoever. Africans do not, in fact, believe that Christianity is any longer real for Europeans due to the immense scaffolding with which they have covered it and the fact that this religion has no effect whatever on their conduct. There were, nonetheless, more than 20 million Christians in Africa, and Dr. James believed that the future of their country was very largely up to them. The task of making Christianity real in Africa was made the more difficult in that they could expect no help whatever from Europe. Christianity, said Dr. James, as practiced by Europeans in Africa, is a cruel travesty. Baldwin goes on to say, this bitter observation, which was uttered in sorrow, gained a great deal of force from the fact that so genial a man had felt compelled to make it. It made vivid, unanswerable, in a way which rage could not have done, how little the West has respected its own ideals in dealing with subject peoples, and suggested that there was a price we would pay for this. Um, 
the point being that Baldwin is a is a magnificent dialectician uh, who drew from his own experience to get at how all things wicked are so fucking deeply bound up in all things beautiful and vice versa. And that that is a struggle to try to live with that and experience life through the understanding of that. And so, of course, Notre Dame, to some people, is a symbol of that. And what can we do except try to own up to the part we've played in creating classes of people who feel nothing but grievance, um, while also trying to honor you know, the astonishing and encompassing beauty of the building um, in its signification to us who aren't such victims. I don't know, something like that, but it just seemed to me Baldwin. I read that as Notre Dame was burning, and it just cut me to my core. Anyway, um, thanks, Dan. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. As always, you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. I, I feel like we've gotten wonderful, wonderful mail lately, so I, I highly uh, I highly encourage it. You can um, you can also engage us uh, at our Twitter feed, which is at slatecultfest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish. For Dan Coyce and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll, we'll see you soon. Here's a sneak peek at this week's Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, plus ad-free podcasts, join us at slate.com slash culture plus. What motivates people to build something like that? Right? I mean, you can be the most dyed-in-the-wool atheist, but even as just an ice-cold anthropologist, you know, looking at what human beings do and why they do it, you have to be astonished at the depth of, of belief that you could build a, a cosmos out of out of stone.